Welcome to Crashing the War Party, where me and my compatriot in the Swamp Wars, Daniel Larison, and I endeavor to crack open the banal and the basic narratives of U.S. foreign policy and endless conflict abroad in order to expose the self-interested corruption and hypocrisy inside. In the second half, we will be talking to William Newman about his book, Things Are Never So Bad That They Can't Get Worse, Inside the Collapse of Venezuela. But first, let's talk about something that seems right out of a Hollywood movie, but unfortunately is very real. Earlier in June, two Iranian scientists, one working in aeronautics for the government, another a geologist working in private industry, died just days apart from severe, unexplained stomach-related sicknesses. The Iranians believe these men were poisoned by Israel, the latest in a series of deaths linked to Tel Aviv over the last month including a senior member of the Revolutionary Guard Corps who was targeted and killed in a drive-by shooting in Tehran. Over the last three weeks, a young defense ministry engineer was also killed in a drone attack, and another senior member of the Revolutionary Guards fell suspiciously to his death from a balcony. Uh, These these killings go back some time. Uh, Actually, nuclear scientist Moshen Bakrazadeh was killed with a remote drone while he was driving in 2020. All fingers point to the Israelis who have been very open about their concerns over Iran's nuclear program and their willingness to get into a military conflict with Tehran if that is what it takes to stop any ambitions for a nuclear weapon. Israel has not denied killing these men, but haven't taken responsibility either. All this runs parallel to Israel's opposition to the U.S. renewing the Iran nuclear deal. Their resistance, in part, has kept the deal in limbo for the entire first year of Biden's presidency and more. Ironically, the longer the deal is not signed, the more uranium enrichment Iran has pursued beyond the old deal's limits, and the more Israel, in turn, raises the alarms. Dan, there seems to be no interest in getting to the bottom of these killings. Meanwhile, there have been reports that Israel has been sharing its strike plans against Iran with the U.S. They are being very aggressive. So where does this leave the U.S.? Right in the middle, it seems. What do you think? Well, it it puts the U.S. in a bad position, especially the the report about Israeli strikes in Syria that were, I guess, essentially greenlit or approved by CENTCOM in advance uh, so that uh, we're, we're clearly implicated or we're, we're in the know about these attacks before they happen, uh, which, which of course is what the Iranians would assume anyway. Uh, but, but it is in fact the case that we're, we're basically giving the green light, uh, for these attacks against Iranian targets in Syria, uh, which is, and so it's no surprise then that Iranian backed militias will then retaliate for those strikes in Syria against our people in Syria and Iraq. And so it's it's we're in the the absurd position where we're ta- our people are taking fire in response to Israeli attacks on Iran in Syria, which I mean among other things is is also illegal. But that's you know that's almost quaint to to even concern ourselves with that right now. Uh, it's it's a, a real problem for the U.S. Uh, because we're we're seen as being uh, complicit and and on board with all of these attacks. Whether we are or not, and of course, in the case of the Syria attacks, we are. Uh, the The other thing that it's uh, a, a, the other thing that makes it a real problem for us is that all of these sabotage attacks have directly led to Iranian escalation and expansion of their nuclear program. So that uh, the the response to the Fakhrizadeh assassination was to increase enrichment up to twenty percent, and then the sabotage attack on Natanz 
led to them upping it to 60%, which they had never done before, uh, and also to, to scale back their cooperation with the IAEA. And so all, all of the advances that have taken place uh, nominally on Biden's watch have happened as a, a direct result of these sabotage attacks. Uh, but, but very frequently, that is not acknowledged in the coverage of these attacks or Iran's nuclear program. Uh, for instance, there was a very lengthy piece in the Wall Street Journal this week talking about Israel's escalating campaign of sabotage and assassination inside Iran. Uh, and it acknowledged that that campaign had not slowed the Iranian nuclear program. What it didn't tell you, and if you didn't know this, you would never have found out from this article, is that the sabotage attacks are actually driving the expansion of that program. So that, that the, the, the sabotage is not only not succeeding, it's actually making the problem much worse than it was. And the Israeli government is out there boasting about how they're going to be doing much, much more of it. So, of course, the Iranians have every incentive to keep responding by, by upping the ante and, and increasing their enrichment, expanding their program even further, uh, but both to defy the Israeli government uh, and also to, to show that they won't be uh, discouraged or stopped uh, by force from doing this which, of course, put, puts uh, all, any talk of military action against Iran in, in important uh, perspective, because it shows that Iran will respond to the use of force by escalating uh, rather than scaling back its program, uh, which, is, which is what you would expect to happen. Uh, if, if you're going to have a nuclear program with the possibility of building your own deterrent, of course, you're going to keep building it if people are trying to stop you. Uh, in fact, every attempt to stop them gives them another reason to try. And so all, all of this is creating uh, additional tensions, additional complications for U.S. diplomacy, which is already in bad shape uh, because the Biden administration won't take the steps necessary. And we've talked about this many times, won't take the steps necessary to revive the agreement and, and get it back on track. And so, you know, I fear uh, the, the saboteurs of the nuclear deal uh, are going to have a lot more success than the saboteurs of Iran's nuclear program. Uh, and indeed, the, they're the same people, uh, by and large, who are doing everything they can to tear down the barriers to Iran's nuclear program uh, while encouraging the expansion of it. And so it's it's going to make everything a lot more dangerous, and it's going to, to create a situation where we're going to have a lot of agitation for military action, even though, as I just said, uh, it's not going to be very useful. Yeah, and I, I feel like you're exactly right about the saboteurs of the JCPOA, because I remember, I think it was Trita Parsi or um, someone from NIAC had written for us at Responsible Statecraft, and I'm sorry, I don't have it in front of me, who had suggested that this very thing would happen, that right before a deal uh, was finally struck uh, sometime this summer, there would be increased assassinations, or there, or there might be an, uh, a strike. Um, there be some sort of kinetic event uh, that would throw um, the final uh, inking of this deal off. And I do, you know, that may not happen exactly as, um, you know, uh, you know, this person had forecasted, but it does seem that the assassinations have ratcheted up uh, the stories that we're hearing uh, about how the, the the Israelis have been sharing its strike plans against Iran with with the U.S. and has done so for years. 
uh, which the U.S. has has not confirmed. Um, but there seems to be a drumbeat of stories about uh, Israel readying for war with Iran. Um, and, and these are running parallel to the stories, as you point out, of the increased enrichment, the 27 cameras that the Iran the Iranians had had reportedly taken out so the IAEA could not monitor them anymore. The IAEA has censored Iran for this increased uh, enrichment. Um, I don't know how under these circumstances this damn deal can, can be signed because now it's become more of a security issue again. Whereas last year, um, you know, things are on the table and, you know, they were arguing about whether the deal should be longer and stronger. And, you know, now that seems quaint because I just don't know that the, the hurdles that have gone up mostly by the Israelis um, seem almost insurmountable as we get closer to an election in which Biden is facing um, a landslide uh, Republican victory um, and he's facing his own people in his own party, uh, like Bob Menendez and other Democrats who don't like the JCPOA and would rather he not sign it. So I, I do feel that there is an amount of, of sabotage going on. And, and, and it's obviously too bad because as you and other smart people have pointed out, that if you don't want Iran to get a bomb, the deal is the best way uh, to prevent it. Well, and it's really the only way because any other route, we've either tried those routes as we have with sanctions and sabotage, uh, or the the costs of going another way uh, with with military action and war would be so high as to be self defeating. Uh, it's it's one of these uh, incredible things where we we're prepared. There are, there are lots of people in Washington uh, and in other capitals that are prepared to countenance a war in which possibly tens or maybe even hundreds of thousands of people could end up getting killed uh, altogether uh, as somehow preferable to Iran having a nuclear threshold capacity, right? Not, not, not even having a bomb, uh, but just having the capacity to possibly one day build one, they consider war an acceptable alternative to that, which I, to my mind is, is completely nuts. Uh, the, the military option for Iran is not really an option at all. It's, it's, it either guarantees that Iran will build nuclear weapons uh, to stave off future attacks, or it will uh, it will cost us so much in the war itself that that we'll have wished that we never even tried to stop it because it, it's simply not worth uh, the cost that it would entail. So we we really have no other alternative besides. Uh, a negotiated compromise like the one that we had, and indeed, I mean, the one that that still technically exists is still there for, uh, to, to, still there to be salvaged, if there is the political will to do it. Uh, but uh, as we've seen over the last year, uh, that that will is simply not strong enough, uh, evidently, and the, the the resistance to it is is so strong from different quarters that it's it's looking like it's it's not going to last out the year. Or, or if it if it remains in force in name only, uh, it, it won't actually be doing anything uh, of any value in terms of nonproliferation. So it's uh, it's, it's a real shame, and it's and it's clearly a, a missed opportunity by Biden, but it's also uh, a self inflicted wound by the Israeli government because you have lots of Israeli security officials who will say that 
it's much better for Israel if the nuclear deal is revived. But their opinions are, are being discounted or, or dismissed uh, by the political leadership, uh, both under Netanyahu and again under the, the coalition government. Uh, of course, I should say the coalition government, uh, which just uh, collapsed uh, in, in this last week, and they, they will now be facing elections of their own. Uh, but but they were becoming much more uh, outspoken about these sabotage attacks uh, in, in just re- just the last few weeks, uh, where the, the outgoing Prime Minister Bennett uh, was boasting about what he called the octopus doctrine and saying, we're, we're going to strike directly at Iran and not only at its quote-unquote tentacles. Uh, and, and of course, this was sort of a confirmation of what we already assumed was happening. But now they're, they're being very bold about it, being very out in the open, saying this is what we're doing. And I, I think that's it's very dangerous for Israel because Iran and its proxies do have ways of striking back at them. Uh, it's dangerous for the whole region. And of course, it's dangerous for our troops who are liable to get caught in the middle uh, in the event of a regional war. And so it's uh, it's very bad. And it's it's a crisis that could have been averted a long time ago. And well, and of course, never should have happened, uh, but, but did because uh, Trump listened to uh, the Iran hawks in his party and uh, and reneged on the deal, which set all of this in motion. Our guest today is William Newman. He is an author and journalist who reported for The New York Times for more than 15 years. He was the Times Andes Region Bureau Chief from 2012 to 2016, based in Caracas. And he is the author of an excellent new book, Things Are Never So Bad That They Can't Get Worse, Inside the Collapse of Venezuela. Welcome to the show. Uh, hi, thank you very much, uh, Daniel and Kelly. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's our pleasure. I, I really enjoyed the book, and I look forward to talking about it here. Um, you show in the book how the Venezuelan government under Chavez and Maduro were responsible for doing so much to wreck the country through corruption, development projects that went nowhere, and increasing authoritarianism. Uh, but you also discuss how Venezuela's oil dependence has warped the country's politics for decades before that. How did Venezuela's oil wealth sabotage its development? How did the oil wealth sabotage the development of the country? This is a story that's not only specific to Venezuela. It's something we've seen in a lot of uh, resource-rich countries, and it gives rise to something that uh, economists call the the resource curse. Um, And what you see in these countries that are extremely uh, dependent on a single resource and the extraction and and exploitation uh, of that resource and the export income that comes from it is that it tends to create all these distortions in in the larger economy. Um, and it creates this great dependence on a single source of income. And oil in particular is extremely volatile, um, even more so than a lot of other resources such as minerals and other extractive things. And so you get extreme highs and then extreme lows. And um, in particular, in the case of Venezuela, under Chavez, what happened is you had this enormous boom, oil boom in the 2000s. Um, Chavez becomes president in 1999, and the price of oil, Venezuelan oil, when he's sworn in, is under $8 a barrel, and it ends up going over $120 a barrel um, during his presidency. So the Chavez and the country benefited from this huge inpouring of uh, income from the oil exports. And then uh, after Chavez's, Chavez died in 2013, uh, the oil, the price of oil started to fall. It started to fall in 2014. 
And uh, so essentially the country ran out of money and hadn't saved anything during all those boom years. Uh, it had used the oil money to sort of fuel this uh, great uh, uh, orgy of consumerism and uh, uh, government subsidies and uh, government spending rather on all sorts of projects that ended up going nowhere. Um, so in the case of Venezuela, the big problem was lots of money coming in, uh, spent a lot of it, stole a lot of it, wasted a lot of it, and they saved nothing. So when the income went away, the, you know, it was like a, a family that uh, that uh, has uh, the, where the income, you know, the breadwinners lose their jobs and they haven't saved and they're destitute. And that's essentially was the case with Venezuela. Uh, it's a it's a tale that you've seen in lots of other countries. The specific thing about Venezuela. Venezuela is that they really saved absolutely nothing. A lot of other countries sort of have learned from previous episodes of this and have learned to save and invest some of the money that didn't happen here. Well, as you point out in the book, uh, oil matters a great deal to the Venezuelan economy, so much so that it basically displaces almost everything else. So when when it when you do have those crashes in prices, it's it's even more devastating for them than for for some other oil producing countries. Um, turning to U.S. policy, uh, you recount how carelessly the U.S. government made Venezuela policy, especially under uh, President Trump. Uh, there was a State Department official named Tom Shannon, for instance, who knew the most about Venezuela of anyone in the government. And from the start, he was largely shut out of discussions within the Trump administration. Uh, so what did the Trump administration fail to understand about Venezuela when they were making their regime change policy? Well, I mean, one of the things that happened under Trump is that at a certain point, there was nobody in really active decision making, almost nobody who had spent any time in Venezuela. At the beginning under Trump, um, you had McMaster, who was the uh, um, national security advisor, and he had a, a skilled team of people doing Latin America work who had spent a lot of time uh, in the region, in particular in Venezuela. Uh, then McMaster gets pushed out and Bolton comes in. Um, and uh, shortly after that, the, the Venezuela expertise disappeared. The people who had expertise in Venezuela left. And Bolton takes this maximum pressure approach um, with no understanding at all of uh, Venezuela. Um, there was virtually nobody in the decision-making apparatus at the State Department or the NSC uh, who had spent any real time in Venezuela. The only person was Jimmy Story, who had become the ambassador, U.S. ambassador to Venezuela, although he was there for only a few months before, with the Guaido episode, the U.S. shuts down the embassy and he relocates to Bogota. Um, and, you know, it was it's interesting because when I was working on the book and I was asking people at State about this, they said, oh, it's not that uncommon for people to, you know, to... People have expertise in the region. Uh, you know, they're highly qualified, that sort of thing. And 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 I had also thought that, I mean, my initial reaction to that was sort of charitable because, well, when I went down to begin covering the region, uh, I was the Andes Region Bureau Chief, so I covered Venezuela and the other Andes countries, such as Colombia. Um, and I had didn't have experience there when I went down at the beginning. However, it, I was being sent there to cover the region and by being there, understand it. And these were people who from Washington were forming US policy without, as uh, one person once said to me, ever having eaten an arepa, an arepa being the, the staple food in Venezuela. Um, and it's very similar to other episodes. I mean, in the 
you wrote a um, a blog post recently about this where you said the sort of lack of understanding of what was going on in Venezuela on the part of the administration is very similar to other regime change episodes. And I recently read uh, a couple of books that really brought that home to me. There was that excellent book by some Washington Post reporters, the Afghanistan, pap- Afghanistan right. Papers, that sort of goes through all the kind of crazy bumbling and, and misunderstandings that went into the, the debacle in Afghanistan. And then I also read McMaster's uh, book uh, written, I believe, in the 80s on Vietnam called uh, Dereliction of Duty, um, which is just an amazing book where he talks about the complete ignorance in the uh, Kennedy and then Johnson White Houses that led to the beginning of the Vietnam War and just sort of you know, they had ideas about the country that weren't related at all to uh, the reality there. And they were basically acting on theory. And Bolton was the same thing. He didn't understand Venezuela. And he never had the sort of intellectual curiosity to speak to people um, who could understand it. And they were also talking to a very small echo chamber of uh, Venezuelan uh, exiles um, in the U.S. uh, who were sort of you know, uh, reinforcing their sort of wrong ideas, um, which is very similar to to earlier episodes. So this is particularly uh, uh, relevant when you get to the Guaido episode, which is in January 2019, uh, when Maduro, the president of Venezuela, begins his second term. And he had become, he was elected after Chavez dies in 2013. He was Chavez's handpicked successor. And then in 2018, there was a, a, another presidential election, which is widely considered to have been illegitimate for a variety of reasons, um, largely because uh, Maduro essentially uh, created an election where only he could win. Um, he uh, outlawed uh, the most likely, uh, outlawed other candidates from running who were likely to beat him, uh, outlawed other political parties, barred them from from participating rather, um, and changed, uh, sort of monkeyed with the kind of conditions and the laws around the elections to, to uh, give himself an advantage. Um, so he begins his, his second term in 2019. And at that point, Juan Guaido, who was a young legislator and the head of the National Assembly, declares himself president. The U.S. supports him. Um, and this was actually sort of uh, cooked up beforehand between the small group of people around Guaido and Leopoldo Lopez, who was the head of the party that Guaido belonged to, and the State Department, and also the Colombian uh, government. It was a Venezuelan idea, but the U.S. immediately got behind it. And so um, at that point, uh, everything goes off the rails because somehow they get the idea that, oh, this is going to work. Maduro is weak. Guaido is going to force him out. Um, and the, the opposite was the case. Maduro wasn't uh, particularly weak. Guaido had never had a, a plan or an ability to force Maduro out. Um, so the U.S. just sort of went down this blind alley of this policy, and we're still there today. And part of that was the sort of the increasing the, the force of the sanctions because um, just very a few days after Guaido declares himself president and the U.S., says, okay, we support Guaido, we recognize him as legitimate president of Venezuela, and other countries do the same thing. Bolton holds a meeting in the White House where he says, now we're going to do the ultimate sanction, which is the oil embargo uh, against Venezuela. And oil is obviously, as we just discussed, the most 
important part of the Venezuelan economy. Um, and so uh, shutting down the sale of Venezuelan oil uh, was going to cripple the economy. And they had the idea that that would somehow magically force Maduro out. Um, and that never happened. And we still have the embargo in place today. And we're obviously dealing with that in the wake of the Russian invasion of Ukraine and the increase in oil prices. Um, it's become a, a, a more, um, you know, it's become an issue again uh, that, 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 you know, it's relevant to U.S. policy. Um, and we're just stuck with it, even though it, it hasn't been effective. Right. And, and so my next question is, is about the continuation of that policy. Uh, is Biden has largely continued the policy he inherited from Trump, including recognizing Guaido as interim president even now. Uh, here we are in 2022. Uh, he, he has no more control over the Venezuelan government today than he did before. He actually has less than he used to have uh, because he's no longer actually head of National Assembly that's recognized by many other countries. Um and, and Biden had declared Trump's policy to be an abject failure when he was a candidate. Uh, now he owns that policy. Uh, why do you, well, and I, I think I know the answer to this, but uh, explain for our listeners why Biden has stuck with a policy that he knows can't succeed. And what should the U.S. do now that maximum pressure has so clearly failed and made things worse? Well, I mean, what I say about uh, Venezuela policy is that the U.S. doesn't have a foreign policy towards Venezuela, or at least it didn't when Trump was in the White House. Uh, the White House uh, had an electoral strategy in Florida and all of the sort of huffing and puffing by Trump about, you know, threatening to invade Venezuela and wanting to look tough with uh, sanctions um, was essentially aimed not at achieving a foreign policy goal or improving conditions in Venezuela, um, but aimed at, uh, it was sending a message to us, you know, as a relatively small group of Hispanic voters in Florida, because obviously Florida is a key state in presidential elections because of the number of electoral votes. And um, the Trump folks were intent on, from the, you know, the day they walked in the White House, they were pointing towards the, the next presidential election. Um, and so a lot of what they did, and in particular in terms of Venezuela policy, Venezuela policy was aimed at this audience in Florida and hoping to, to persuade voters there. Um, it was very successful in that sense because Trump did win the election, the 2020 election in Florida um, by quite a bit more than he had the previous time. Um, and, you know, the receptive audience there is Cuban-American voters, uh, uh, Colombian-American voters, and a smaller number of Venezuelan-Americans. But taken as a block, they were very receptive to this sort of hard talk about, uh, you know, trying to um, uh, overthrow a, a, a Latin American leftist dictator. Um, and so Biden comes in and the Democrats have been spanked in Florida in 2020 and they're just snake bit and they're they're terrified of, uh, of worsening their position in Florida. And they realize that um, anything that they do that could be interpreted as softening the U.S. stance towards Maduro, the president of Venezuela, could hurt them again and, and, and make things worse in, in the midterms and then the, the 2024 election in Florida. So he basically keeps things where they were. They didn't want to really want to touch uh, things very much in terms of Venezuela policy. Um, that's becoming a harder position to maintain for a variety of reasons now when Russia invades Ukraine and the price of oil goes up and the price of gasoline in the U.S. goes up, 
then the Biden administration feels uh, it has to do something to try and address uh, that. And um, one of the things that they did was say, well, where else can we bring oil from? And Venezuela used to be an important uh, oil exporter to the U.S. Um, after the sanctions, they export nothing. And so they sent uh, a group uh, from the White House and the State Department to go talk to Maduro and you know discuss a variety of things. And one of them was the possibility of resuming oil exports to the U.S. That hasn't happened because there was immediately a political political backlash against it. Um, although uh, just in the last few days, um, due to you know license special licenses uh, creating exemptions from the sanctions, uh, some small amounts of exports to Europe have resumed, uh, structured as essentially debt payments um, that the PDVSA, the Venezuelan oil company, owes to uh, uh, in this case the Italian um, oil company. Um, so there's some movement there. It's it's a complicated thing because Venezuela at this point doesn't produce enough oil to to significantly affect or lower world oil prices, which is what determines prices at the gas pump in the U.S. Um, but I think that Biden, at least at one point, wanted to send a signal: look, we're doing everything we can to bring in more oil to address this situation. Um, uh, you know, the other thing that's happening now is that the political. Uh, situation in other parts of Latin, Latin America is shifting. And you just had uh, uh, Gustavo Petro, a leftist, win the presidency in Venezuela. And Petro, during the campaign, said that he would um, change his country's policy towards uh, Venezuela, which has been very hardline uh, up to now. And he would resume uh, normal diplomatic relations with Maduro and resume, um, you know, economic, uh, resume trade, which has been largely frozen. Um, uh, so more and more, the Biden administration is being uh, left on its own, uh, especially losing at this point, you know, its most significant Latin American, South American ally in, in Colombia, losing it in terms of its support for, for Venezuela policy. Wow. Thank you, William, for coming on the show. Um, there's just a lot to unpack here. And I know we don't have a ton of time. Um, but can you talk a little bit about the summit of the Americas? It would seem to me that um, the weaknesses in the Biden administration's policies toward Latin America were really put in stark relief during that week when you had the president of Mexico uh, boycotting uh, because Venezuela, um, Cuba, and I can't remember who were the what was the third country that was not what was disinvited or not invited to the Los Angeles event. Uh, you know, there there was most of the coverage on the summit of Americas were about boycotts or threat of boycotts, um, the mismatch between American policy and what you know, the real issues that need to be um, discussed down there. Um, can you tell me a little bit about uh, how you see the aftermath of the summit for Americas and given you mentioned the the latest election in, in Colombia is I think um, the second election, recent election in which a leftist president is taking over, you know, where does this put the, the Biden administration? Does it just put aside it's these electoral issues in Florida so it could start working with these leaders? Or is it making the U.S. more isolated, I guess, um, in its own hemisphere? Sure. Um, I mean, first, for your listeners, the Summer of the Americas is this uh, – uh, meeting uh, that occurs every three or four years of uh, heads of state 
in the Western Hemisphere. So it's the U.S., Canada, and the countries in Latin America and the Caribbean. And the first one occurred in 1994. It was really a creation of the Clinton administration. Um, and this is only the second time, the first time since the original one, uh, that the meeting has been held in the United States. This time, the first one was in Miami, and this one was in Los Angeles. It's since then, in the interim, been held, you know, I was at one in, in Colombia, and, uh, you know, it's been in Canada, Argentina, et cetera. Um, so it's an interesting moment to look at relations between the U.S. and, and Latin America. And this one, and this time a lot of attention uh, was captured by who wasn't there. Um, and this was really the fault of the Biden administration's uh, lack of planning and preparation. I mean, one of the extraordinary things about the summit was it was just this sense that so many things were improvised. Um, uh, and. And, you know, typically a lot of sort of diplomatic spade work would go into the preparation for the summit. And he would spend a lot of time talking with uh, the foreign ministries of other countries to get ready. And that didn't happen this time. And so you had this kind of embarrassing debacle where where uh, Mexico stayed away, where how, where Bolsonaro, the president of Brazil, was threatening to stay away. And they had to send a delegation there to sort of, you know, smooth things over and 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 stroke egos and and eventually, you know, and promise him a one on one meeting with Biden in order for him to come. Um, the part of the controversy uh, uh, developed because the Biden administration said they weren't going to invite uh, Cuba, Venezuela, and Nicaragua, um, because those are uh, the idea being that uh, this was a, a meeting of democratic heads of state, democratically elected heads of state. Um, and then there's a lot of precedent for that. I mean, uh, in uh, a previous, maybe it was like the third summit, the, the leaders all agreed that this, these summits were only to be for uh, democratically elected governments. Um, but uh, AMLO, uh, the president of Mexico, took advantage of that and said that he wasn't going to come. AMLO hardly ever leaves Mexico. He's only left Mexico two or three three times, I think, during his presidency. So, you know, maybe that he was simply looking for an excuse not to go. And and all all or almost all the countries where the president didn't go, um, they sent a foreign minister or, or some other uh, uh, important representative. So they did participate. Um, uh, in most or all cases. Um, and that was the case to Mexico, too. But it was very uh, significant because one of the things that the U.S. wanted to discuss uh, at this summit and one, one of the things they wanted to, to the summit to produce was some kind of uh, agreement on immigration. And if, you know, the preoccupation to the U.S. is immigration into the U.S. from uh, from in particular Central America and other parts of Latin America, uh, through Mexico, if Mexico isn't there, you're, there isn't a whole lot uh, uh, of movement that you can get. Um, the other countries that boycotted were uh, El Salvador and Guatemala for reasons of their own, because the presidents there were angry at the U.S. sort of pressuring them uh, over uh, lapses in, you know, following democratic norms and cracking down on corruption. Um, but so you had the situation where you know, the countries where many of the refugees are coming from to the U.S., which is also Honduras didn't come. So you didn't have Honduras, Guatemala, El Salvador. The presidents weren't there. Mexico wasn't there. Uh, Bolsonaro threatened not to come. Everything was up in the air. Um, and so that was just a, it was really a, an illustration of the um, the decay of U.S. influence in the region. But one of the other things that we saw there was 
Um, you know, it goes back to this discussion that we had about Florida, because so much of U.S. policy now is captured by small interest groups. Foreign policy is captured by small interest groups. So one of the reasons that, you know, Biden couldn't invite Cuba or at least a representative of Cuba or these other countries is that he's still afraid of the reaction in Florida. Then also in Congress, because you have Bob Menendez, the very powerful senator from uh, New Jersey, who's very hawkish on um, Cuban and Venezuelan uh, issues, and you know, inviting somebody from Cuba would have alienated uh, you know, Menendez, which they can't afford to do given how tight things are in the Senate. Um, and it was also similar to the, you know, the U.S. came to this meeting with this series of very sort of poorly thought out, poorly developed proposals. They had this economic package that essentially had never been discussed with the other participants that was just kind of like a outlined, you know, sheet and a half of uh, bullet points, um, nothing really to, to, to uh, you know, they, they said, well, now we're going to start discussions about this. And what it really was, was sort of a set of Democratic talking points aimed at Democratic constituencies about green jobs and um, that sort of thing, um, not really aimed at creating a, some kind of uh, uh, coherent conversation with the, these other countries. Um, so, you know, you just see how these interest groups are able to handcuff this administration and really the U.S. government, not just now, but but starting at least with Trump, um, increasingly make it difficult to have any kind of coherent uh, policy there. Yeah, and it doesn't seem, and I don't know because I'm not an expert in this region, but uh, the groundwork, like you said, had not been laid down and there might not be the people seated in, you know, the Biden administration to have done this legwork. Um, and, and that leaves all sorts of room for these special interest groups to sort of lead the policy, unfortunately. Um, I know we don't have much time left, but I have to ask you, um, you know, we see all these reports, these scaremongering reports about Russia and Venezuela working together. I read a piece, I, I think it was about maybe two weeks ago about Russia, uh, Venezuela and, and Russia signing some security deal where they, uh, Russians are able to drill and, and bring troops down um, like a couple times a year. I think it's almost making official what's already happening now. But, you know, this is fodder for the neoconservatives and um, the um, harshest critics of our policies uh, of, for Venezuela to say, hey, this is why we have to keep sanctions on, because they're playing footsies with Russia and they're playing footsies with Iran. And they become a secure, an even bigger security threat in our um, hemisphere. I wanted to hear what you might have to say about that. Well, I mean, Maduro has essentially made Venezuela a client state of Russia. And the reason that that occurred essentially was the U.S. pushed him in Russia's direction by, you know, by cutting off uh, uh, diplomatic relations, by embargoing the economy, by severe sanctions. Um, where else was Maduro going to go? I mean, uh, you know, starting with Chavez, uh, Venezuela had good relations with Russia, with China. China has become very influential throughout Latin America in terms of being a trade partner and an investor. Um, but uh, in the case of Russia, um, you know, there's a beneficial relationship there. And in the run up to the invasion in Ukraine, 
beginning, Maduro was very loudly, you know, perhaps Putin's biggest cheerleader in Latin America. And there was a reason for that. One, he was, you know, pleasing his sponsor. And it just sort of helps confuse things. I mean, part of Putin's and, you know, Maduro's and this sort of um, uh, state, what, what they want to do is, you know, they want to confuse the listener. They want to make it very hard to... They want to muddy the waters, make it hard to to oppose what they do. And so the fact that Maduro, who declares himself a great anti-imperialist, was supporting, you know, Russia, the imperial country, the larger, stronger country invading, you know, as it prepared to invade a smaller country that created space in Latin America and especially in the left in Latin America for people to question the the whole um, U.S. and, and NATO uh a narrative around what was happening in Ukraine. Um, but in terms of security support, yes, they, you know, buy weapons from, from Russia. Yes, there, there is cooperation there. Um, but, you know, at some point, Russia was, you know, threatening to sort of base some uh, military activities there. That, that's highly unlikely to ever happen. I mean, a lot of this is showmanship and, and, and making noise. And also in terms of the Iranian relationship, yes, they have a a, a relationship with Iran. Iran has helped uh, Venezuela get around the sanctions, and particularly the oil sanctions, because Iran has a lot of experience with that. Um, but, but you know, a lot of people like to say, "Oh, well, you know, Hezbollah is is active in in Venezuela, and you know, that's a security threat to the U.S." And when I talk to people, um, you know, State Department folks, ex-CIA folks who have looked at this closely, they tell me that. Yes, Hezbollah is in the region, not just in Venezuela, but in other countries, mostly in terms of fundraising, um, uh, you know, small groups of uh, uh, Lebanese uh, 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 immigrants, you know, tend to send some money. But it's not in terms of, you know, organizing activities. There's there's not a significant presence. It's very similar to Cuba. I mean, there are people who say, oh, Cuba controls everything that happens in Venezuela. Cuban is president. It's an important ally of Maduro. Um, they give him a lot of security um, uh, support. But, you know, it's wrong to say that Venezuela is a puppet state of, of Cuba. But it does, you know, it helps people who want to make certain points to, to, to say that. And when we know how, how threatened inflation uh, works in all of these cases, uh, and of course, the, it gets used in the other direction uh, to gin up uh, hostility towards Iran to say, well, they're they're working with Venezuela, and therefore that's one more reason why we should be hostile to them. Um, so uh, thanks very much for the conversation, uh, uh, William Newman. Uh, uh, be sure to check out his great book on uh, the collapse of Venezuela. Uh, things are never so bad that they can't get worse. Thanks very much. Thank you, Kelly, and thank you, Daniel. Thank you. Thank you again for tuning into today's episode. If you enjoy and value real conversations such as these, please leave us a five-star rating on your favorite podcaster of choice. Right now, Crashing the War Party can be found on Stitcher, TuneIn, and at Substack at crashingthewarparty.substack.com, where you can also sign up for our newsletter. Special thanks to our editor, Remzo W. Martinez, the Crashing the War Party team, and to you, our listeners. Let's create a more peaceful world, one episode at a time.